<clears throat> well, welcome everyone to our Sunday afternoon session in Second Life. Good to see a good turnout as always. It's a sign that even in this day and age there are still people interested in the development of the mind, in developing themselves, which is uh, a sign that the world is still, uh, there's still hope. And uh, we should feel proud of ourselves and happy to know that uh, we still have this opportunity. The Buddha talked about uh, not letting the moment pass you by and how rare it is to find the opportunity to develop yourself. And here as human beings, um, in a time and a place where we're able to appreciate these teachings, we have the potential to develop ourselves. And so it behooves us not to waste our, waste our time, uh, waste our lives away, and to miss the opportunity. So today I'm going to assume that everyone has uh, a basic understanding of, of what we're doing here. Um, understanding of uh, what this means, what the Buddhist teaching is, and so on. I'm just going to talk a little bit about what we're trying to, or, or what we can expect to to realize in the meditation practice. Because Buddhism, as we understand it, is for the purpose of development of wisdom. The Buddha said, just as the stars in the sky are no match for the light of the moon, so too, all good good qualities of mind, all wholesome virtues, pale in comparison to the virtue of wisdom. Wisdom is like the moon, um, and is is brighter than <clears throat> brighter than the stars in the sky. This is because once you have wisdom. You're able to tell what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. You're able to, um, you're able to see the difference between good and, and and evil, between those things that are of benefit to yourself and those things that are not, because you understand everything correctly. You know what is the cause and what is the effect, and so you can bring about those um, uh, effects which uh, are beneficial to oneself and to other people. As a result of wisdom you gain um, compassion, ki kindness, sympathy, you gain equanimity, mindfulness, and all of the good qualities that we uh, would hope for for ourselves and for other people. So I'm, I'm assuming that some of this is already, uh, already to be known um, by the people here. What, we'll, what I'm going to talk about today is, uh, as I said, the wisdom that you gain from the practice. When you start to practice meditation, when you start to look at reality, start to examine uh, the experience in front of you, and start to clear your mind up, what is it that you're going to realize? So we should be clear about this, that when we practice meditation we're not practicing simply to calm the mind or to um, 
to experience blissful states, temporary states of bliss or 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 quiet or or calm or so on. We're not trying to enter a trance. We're not trying to experience special or mysterious or mystical states, super mundane, in the sense of of something outside of ourselves. We're not trying to gain magical powers. We're not trying to remember past lives. We're not trying to predict the future, see heaven or hell. These are all um, byproducts of the practice or things which can be gained through certain meditation practices but certainly aren't the goal. What we're trying to gain is wisdom and understanding. And so the, the, the types of understanding that we're trying to gain, um, the first thing that we're trying to gain is a basic understanding of the building blocks of reality. So when we talk about understanding reality, understanding things as they are, the, the, there's obviously great benefit to understanding things as they are. You you aren't confused. When a problem arises, you can deal with it correctly. When you um, when something comes up that is displeasing, you're able to see through it. You're able to see things um, not as uh, entities or, or, or a problem, but you're able to see what it's made up of. You're able to see how your own emotions, your own judgments of things are the cause of your suffering. But what we, what we, what we find difficult to, to understand is, is how to get there, how to get to this state of clear awareness or clear understanding of things that we're able to deal with reality rationally, that our mind is clear, that we're able to be in tune with things as they are. So the first step is simply to understand reality as it is, um, to set our minds in the right frame, to, to take on the right framework, um, because not everything that, um, that we engage our mind in is real. Much of what we, we in, we're involved in, or much of what we, which we base our lives around, is actually conceptual, is uh, illus illusory. Uh, for instance, if you look at this computer screen, this is obviously a very simple example. When you look at the computer screen, you see a number of people sitting in, if you're looking at, depending where your focus is, from my focus, focal point, I see a group of people sitting under some trees in a park. I hear birds and, and so on. But none of this is real. All of this is conceptual. And the concept of person, the concept of the, the trees and the forest and the birds, it all arises in the mind. The reality is there's light touching my eye. I can't even see the computer screen. All I can be aware of is the light that's touching my eye, and if there's no light coming from the computer screen, I can't see the, the computer screen at all. This is, this is just a simple explanation of, of the difference between concept and reality, and we need both of these. But what we're trying to focus on in meditation is the, the, the former type, which is, which is the reality. We're not trying to focus on the, yeah, the, the conceptual. Because what we find is that it's because of concepts that we run into problems, that we develop problems. The reason why we have difficulties in our lives 
is not because of the, the reality of the situation. It's because of how we, um, how we develop and what sort of concepts we construct based on the reality. So, in regards to all the people sitting here, I mean, maybe you know some of these other people, maybe some of them are pleasing to you, some of them are displeasing, some of them you like, some of them you don't like. And it's because of this partiality, especially on the side of disliking, that we fall into suffering. Uh, even as far as liking, um, when we like a person, when we, we are attracted to them or attached to them, then when they act or speak in a way that is displeasing to us, we get angry because we expect, we have this expectation and this need, you could say, for them to be in a certain way. So because of our inability to see a concept as a concept and, and we create this construct of person and we have this idea of how they should be, uh, if it's a person who we like then we have this idea of them being pleasing to us and, and when we see them we feel, we feel happy because we expect something good from them. If they're an unpleasant person we get angry and upset and right away we suffer. But either way it's a cause for suffering because of our expectations. When we, when we look at, at reality from the other point of view, starting from reality and, and understanding where the concepts arise and the difference between what's really there and what's conceptual, then we can choose how we're going to build our conceptions. And, and we can create only those concepts which are neutral, which are, um, which are harmless. So we know that it's a person. We have love for them, we have compassion for them, but we aren't attached to them. We don't ex have any expectations that they should behave in this way or that way. And if they're um, a, a mean and nasty sort of person, then we, we, um, we don't give rise to this idea of them of the, as an entity. We see that this is an entity and, and there are emotions arising in, the, in their mind and so on. And so we can create pure and and wholesome um, ideas of who and what we are so it's important to to be able to um, see what's really there instead of getting caught up in in concepts and and mental creations the other thing about seeing reality is we're able to see the among the realities which realities are the wholesome and, and which are the unwholesome we can see which realities are going to bring us, which building blocks are, are involved in creating suffering because um, it's not true that, uh, that, that, that reality is neutral. There, there are certain, um, certain states of mind which can cause us suffering, which are based on seeing things conceptually. You know, as I said, when you see a person you like, you become attached to them. When you remember or recognize something as being something else. When we learn to, un to see reality for what it is, when we learn to see the building blocks, um, see what, what makes up reality, then we can break this down. So, so what, is, what is reality made up of? Well, most of you should be aware, if you've done any study in Buddhism, that we understand to be re reality to be made up of two things. There are two parts to reality, or two different kinds of reality. And this is the first realization that you have to gain in meditation. And it's, 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 it's incredibly important. It's essential to our mental development. It's the 
door to to spiritual development. And this is what I said, if you haven't had any instruction in meditation, this is going to be the stumbling block. This is where you're what's going to uh, hold you back because you come and you think, okay, I want to understand reality. I want to be wise and 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 clear-minded and so on, but you don't have a clue where to begin. This is the beginning point: is the clear experience of reality as it is, not in terms of 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 uh, having any understanding of it, but understanding what it is that you're looking at, what what it is that you're. Um, you're dealing with, and as I said, as opposed to those things that are are constructed in the mind. In reality, everything comes down to the physical and the mental. These are the two parts of reality. And physical and mental are just the way that that we've come to to name them. the The meaning of these two things is that certain realities or certain part of reality has no experience, has no knowledge of of other other states of reality. Very simple. They're like rocks and and, um, and trees and um, you know the, the clothes that we wear. Inanimate um, objects. Even all of our bodies are, are are without the mind. A dead body has no awareness. This is the physical. What we call mental, the meaning of mental is something that is aware, something that experiences. This is what we're going to realize when we sit down to meditate. And this is important when we start to meditate that we understand that this is what we're looking at. We're not looking at ourselves or our soul or um, we're not looking for angels or gods. Uh, we're not looking for um, any, any kind of conceptual reality. We're looking at the experience. When you see something, you're looking at you're examining the seeing. When you hear, you're examining the hearing, the smelling, the tasting, the feeling in the body, and the thinking. So when we start to meditate, often we'll have people focus on the breath. Um, you hear people talk about breath meditation. In the practice that I teach, we focus on where the breath touches the body, because that's physical. Breath in and of itself is considered to be a, a conceptual object. Because when you think about it, you can't experience the breath. What you're experiencing is where the breath touches the the body, uh, some some nerve ending or or some place where there is a stimulation in the body. And the most obvious place is in the stomach. When the stomach rise, when the breath goes into the body, the stomach should rise. And if you put your hand there, you can feel it. This is like the first, um, for many people, the first experience of reality. When they sit down and meditate, and med in meditation, the first understanding of, of what is really real, or this is how we're um, asking you to approach the, the meditation path. Just experiencing the rising and the falling of the stomach, because that's real. That is something that exists. It arises and it ceases. You can clearly um, perceive the, the arising and the ceasing of it. This is what we mean by physical. The mental is the mind that goes to know the object. And you can see that they're both there. Before I, I asked you to look at the stomach, 
you could see that your, your, your mind wasn't at the stomach, even though the belly was rising and falling naturally. You weren't aware of it. Once I ask you to look at it, then the mind goes out to the stomach. And as you meditate, you can see that the mind is actually flitting around. It's going sometimes to the eyes, sometimes to the ear, sometimes to the body. It's going from one sense to the other. This is what we mean by the mental. It goes from one physical base to another. And it can go quite quickly between the, two, between the various states. This is the first thing that we have to get across, that this is what we mean by reality. We're not talking about people, we're not talking about places, we're not talking about problems. We're talking about building blocks. What makes a problem? What makes a person? What makes everything? Every single thing in the universe is made up of experience. This is one way of looking at reality. This is the Buddhist way of understanding reality. Experientially, that everything in the universe is made up of experience. You can't have something arise without um, without there being the experience or um, we describe things in terms of how they're experienced so you can talk about galaxies and constellations and, and things that are so far away that no one's ever experienced them but in Buddhism the way we talk about those things is how they're experienced when you see something it's still seeing when you hear it's still hearing when you smell and so on so I've often um, taught people from other religious traditions or who have practiced other types of meditation, most especially Hindu meditators. And with Hindu meditators, they have so many special um, spiritual experiences that they'll talk about and that they'll they'll attain through their meditation practice. And the difference between that type of meditation and this one is we'll have, we'll have we have to explain to them that that yes, that is quote-unquote special, but in, it is in fact, you can, you can in fact break it down to very ordinary mundane things. When you see God, when you see an angel, when you see heaven, when you see this or that, it's still just seeing. When you hear the voice of, uh, or you hear Om, or you hear the, you know, some primordial sound or so, and some special sound, it's still just hearing. When you feel bliss, the bliss of heaven, the, you know, they have, they'll have names. And it's these names that are conceptual. So I've, I, I've, I've often argued, on the other hand, with people who don't believe in any of this stuff. You know, they don't believe in magic, and they, they say there's no scientific proof. And this is, there's this methodolatry, this worshipping of the method. If, if, if you can't prove it by scientific method, then it doesn't exist. So in Buddhism, we're making a distinction here. When a person says they saw God or they heard God, God talked to them. The, the answer from science is to say, I don't believe you, that um, you, know, you are, we believe that you're delusional, or, or we have, you, know, you have no, that, is, that there's no proof there. And in Buddhism, in, in one sense we agree with that, in the sense that when a person says they see God, um, we understand that there's two things going on. There's the reality, the real part, which is the seeing, which is totally, totally um, possible and in all likelihood is the truth. But the fact that you think that that's God is your own value judgment. 
It's your own concept. It's your own uh, extrapolation of it. And this is what's most important. This is what we're trying to get away from for the purposes of meditation. Because as I said, we're trying to see the building blocks so that we can build up those concepts. You know, we can use concepts of people and places and things, but not get caught up in them and see that they are the, see them as the ultimate reality. That person is real. You know, this loved person of mine, this person who I love and care for and who is who is kind and gentle and supportive to me. Because that's not the reality. And the reality is it's actually quite different that that person is not stable. They, 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 they may change. They may decide one day that they don't like you. They, they often cause suffering and hurt for us because of our expectations. And furthermore, they're not permanent. We're not always going to be with them, and so on. This is an example of how uh, concept, concepts can hurt us if we're not aware of the impermanent reality and the nature of of reality, the nature of body and mind. Once we can understand how the mind works, we can see why other people hurt us, why other people cause us suffering. We can see how, how you can't really say a person is lovable and, and wonderful when they still have the potential to give rise to anger and, and, and hatred. So um, we, we come to understand why people get angry and, and, and aren't surprised when people change. We see that that's the nature of things that people, uh, nobody's perfect and we're able to forgive and we're able to actually feel sympathy for those people who, when they get angry because we see that they're suffering and they're causing um, future suffering for themselves so this is the first thing we're trying to understand reality for what it is when you sit down and meditate, this should be uh, I think this is key and if we can understand this then we can easily progress in meditation understand what you're looking at when we talk about trying to develop wisdom, we're talking about looking at these building blocks of the physical and the mental. As long as you're focusing on things as being, phys as being uh, simply what they are, seeing is seeing. It's the light touching the eye and the mind that, is, that goes out to the eye to know, to be aware of it. When the hearing, there's the ear and the sound, and then there's the mind which, which catches it, and so on. So when you catch it up in some elementary form, you know, when the stomach rises, we say rising. When it falls, we say falling. Because that word, it's not that there's anything special about that word. That word just encapsulates the experience, encapsulates that reality. So instead of seeing it as a stomach, uh, my stomach rising, we see this as a, a, a motion, a reality that is arisen and is going to cease. This is what we mean by rising and falling. When we see something, we say seeing. When we hear something, we say hearing. We use this mantra to um, focus the mind on the ultimate reality. As we continue to do this, this is how wisdom is going to rise. This is how understanding is going to arise. Our mind is going to let go of concepts. This is the most important um, shifting point in our understanding. Once our mind shifts from from seeing concepts, looking at a person and seeing it as a person, instead of looking at it and seeing it as the seeing first, starting from the seeing, then knowing that there's a person there and knowing that we have to talk to them and so on. But being aware of ourselves and aware of the emotions, aware of our attachments, and, and uh, aware of the experience as it's occurring so that we don't give rise to greed, anger, uh, um, arrogance, and, and conceit, and so on, all of the negative states. If we can start from the point of view of reality, 
and then we're able to to see things clearly as they are and, and our meditation this is how wisdom is going to arise take your meditation practice to the source of reality the source of, of all experience once we do this if we're able to do this clearly what's going to allow us to let go and purify our reactions our interactions with the people and with the world around us um, the, the the next is the next thing we're going to realize, which is the called the three characteristics. The three characteristics of all of reality. So all of these building blocks, which means everything, every piece of experience, say the rising of the stomach or the pain in the body or thoughts that we have, or emotions that arise, sights, sounds, smells, taste, any any part of reality is governed by three characteristics. So the characteristics of seeing are not the same as the characteristics of hearing. The pain in the body is not the same as the thoughts in our mind. These are different parts of reality and have different characteristics. But one characteristic that all of these, or three characteristics that these things all share, these are called the three characteristics. The, um, they're called the... Um, mm -hmm. What are they called? What's the Pali word? Samanya lakana. Samanya. Samanya means they are um, universal. They are shared in common with all with all arisen things. And so, what are these three characteristics? These are the characteristics of one that all of these things, all of, everything that arises, everything inside of ourselves and in the world around us, is impermanent. Yeah, in Pali, Samanya, with an S. In Burmese, it becomes a Tha. <laughs> but, yeah, in Pali, is Samanya. Uh, so everything is impermanent. That mean, This is the, the, the key that I was talking about before, how people change, how, how, how um, the things that we hold on to as stable, uh, all of the things that we love are impermanent. We come to see this the, that that what we're dealing with is much more fluid and much more dynamic than talking about a person or talking about a place or a thing. These these concepts of person, place, and thing are what we develop uh, based on a repeated observation of the way things are. And this is why we're, sometimes we'll be shocked by a person when they react in a way that. We can't believe that they act like that. That's that's so unlike this person, right? The, the the whole point is that person is something that arose in our mind. It was it was never really there in the first place. What we're dealing with is a flux of the physical and the mental that's occurring inside of what we call them, and that flux is changing all the time. It's impermanent. All of the happiness, all of the um, the, the the objects of the sense that we enjoy and find pleasure in, they're all um, none of them are lasting. They they cannot hope to satisfy us because they're not impermanent. They're not permanent. So this is important because um, it allows us to be dynamic. It allows us to dance with reality. This is this is a, I think a really good analogy. Is the idea that life has a rhythm to it, and the reason why we suffer is because we're out of rhythm. We're out of tune with reality. We're too slow. We're not able to keep up. We cling to some part of reality right, that, that arose and get this idea in our mind that we can somehow 
that 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 is is reality. That's uh, or or that we can somehow make it last. And so we miss the beat. We miss the rhythm. And and life has moved on. We cling to a person in the way they we thought they were. They've moved on. We can't accept it. And and as a result, we feel suffering. And 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 life is like this. We try to build up stability, right? We want to have a good job, a nice house, and a partner who loves us. We want to have children who behave, and so on and so on. We want to develop all of these things, and it's rarely, if ever, like that. If we're not able to roll with the punches and to accept change, we're never going to be truly happy. So meditation allows us to see on a microscopic level, so to speak, um, this nature of reality that everything is changing we can see what's going on underneath these concepts these uh, entities that we uh, create in our minds it allows us to to be more dynamic the second characteristic is that of suffering 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 is the the bane of any any buddhist teacher because we have to explain about suffering. We know that no one wants to hear about suffering, right? There's a conference going on in Georgia, I think, right now. Does anybody know about this conference? Does anyone know what conference I'm referring to? It's a conference um, on an interreligious conference starring the Dalai Lama on science of happiness? No. Religion, happiness in religion, something to do with religion and happiness, how religions bring happiness. Somewhere in America, I think, it's going on right now, today, the 17th. And uh, this, I, I heard a, there was a Buddhist monk once who joked, he said, you know, this is marketing. You know, this is uh, marketing for the new age, because nobody wants to hear about suffering, right? Of course not. You want to hear about happiness. We want to hear the good things. We have enough suffering in our lives, right? We, don't, we, we come here to escape our suffering. You don't want to come here to Second Life and have someone talk to you about suffering, right? Well, see, the problem is what we're talking about, what we're talking about uh, in Buddhism is reality. So, you know, you thought you were coming here to escape reality, right? Well, surprise, surprise, here we are... Uh, here we are coming back to back to reality and and this is the point is that we don't want to see reality the reason why many people come to practice meditation is to escape reality is to escape their lives right you you know about transcendental meditation well that's the whole point of the meditation is to transcend so you don't have to deal with your problems which is a shame really because uh, we are perfectly capable as human beings to deal with our problems we are per perfectly equipped to 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 um, to succeed and to be victorious, to ch be a champion, and yet we end up being cowards and uh, preferring the, the route of a drug addict. Really, finding something that is pleasant and and uh, addictive and 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 running away to it. So in Buddhism we take the strong route. We take the route which is pure, which which is really, really the 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 grown-up way of doing things. It's the way of facing your problems head-on. And the wonderful thing is the realization 
that they weren't so bad after all, that in fact this is where peace, happiness and freedom from suffering comes from, is facing the suffering, facing the problems. The reason why we suffer is because we don't want to look, we don't want to see, because we refuse to experience the reality in front of us. It's, it's so clear, this, this, these building blocks of reality and experience and all this stuff, it's so easy to see. If we would just look, and this is what we don't want to do, we think, ah, put that aside, we procrastinate, and ah, I don't want to meditate, and I don't have time to meditate, and so on. And yet when we do sit down and meditate, we realize how wonderful it is, how peaceful it is, how um, enlightening it is. Because what, the, what we mean by, by seeing that everything, all of the things inside of us and in the world around us are suffering, or are unpleasant, or are, um, you know, really the meaning is not that, um, not that they're negative, but seeing that they are a source only of suffering, that, that, that nothing in the world can satisfy us. So we often translate this as unsatisfying. Because this is, of course, easier for people to understand. It doesn't really matter how you say. It. The point is, don't go there. Seeing that these things, that that every object of the sense is unsatisfying, which basically means that if you cling to it, you're going to suffer. You're you're not going to be happy. Is the freedom that we're looking for? You come here to find freedom, right? You're running away from your life. It's probably not that bad. I mean, you're not, you're not an escapist or anything. But we come here for for a vacation. We come here because oh, it's nice and beautiful, and, and we can have fun for some time before we have to go back to reality. Well, this is the exact point of the <coughs> the meditation to see things in a new way, to see things um, as dangerous, and to to see that this thing in front of me is going to cause me suffering if I cling to it. And when you see that, you don't cling to it. Whereas in our ordinary lives, if we're not meditating, we're clinging to things all the time. And this is why we're suffering. Something bad comes up, we get angry, we're clinging to it. Something good comes up, we want it, we're clinging to it. And we build up and build up this compartmentalizing of reality. This is acceptable, this is unacceptable. So we arrange our lives, try to arrange it as stable and, and so on, only ever getting the things that we want, building up this addiction and a greater and greater addiction and, and, and building up these uh, mental cycles and, and habits and requirements for our lives until it breaks down and we suffer, until we can't get what we want, until something goes wrong because it's not stable. So, so the, this is why we shouldn't be afraid of the truth of suffering. It doesn't mean that we have to suffer. It doesn't mean life is suffering. The Buddha never said life is suffering. I don't care what anyone says. You'll never find that phrase in the Buddha's teaching, that life is suffering. And it's sad because really good Buddhist teachers are saying this. There's, there's nothing really wrong with, with, with saying life is suffering. I mean, it's just something you say, but, but it sounds terrible. And really what it implies is you can't escape it. And in fact, you can. If you don't cling to things, they, they can't cause suffering for you. The point is they're not worth clinging to. Your, suffer, your happiness is not going to be found in any object of the sense. None of you are going to make me happy. 
If I can't be content and free myself from my addictions, from my craving, there, there's no way that, that any of you can help me and find, find peace and happiness. So by clinging to all of you and say, please, please help me and, and, and trying to, to create relationships that are going to please me and so on, is futile. It's like um, being a half of a person and always requiring someone else to complete you. When in fact we are whole in and of ourselves. The third characteristic then is um, probably, I would say, the most core to Buddhism. Because actually these other two things are, are quite... Um, uh, how do you say? They're, they're found in in a quite a wide variety of religious teachings. You'll hear about how impermanent things are and and how you're not going to find happiness in this or that. But the third characteristic is something that's fairly intrinsically Buddhist, and that is the characteristic of non-self, not being uh, the self, or not having an entity, not having a identity. And this applies to the being as well. When you think about yourself, normally we think of it as me. You know, and we and as a result, we have all of these these identities. You know, I am this, I am that. And if you've ever heard these people, and we often do it as well, I can't help it, I'm just an angry person, right? It's who I am. Or I like this, or I like that, or I uh, I love these things, I love that, and so on. And you identify with it. You create this identity. This is opposite of the meditative, the clear meditative state of mind that we're trying for. The clear meditative state of mind we're trying for is to see things arising and ceasing. The, the, when you say, I love this, or I love that person, you're talking about an emotion that arises. And in fact, it's probably a, a couple of different emotions. The one part of it is you want to make them happy. You feel love and, and, and friendship and kindness towards that person. But the other part of it is you're thinking, oh, that person makes me happy. This is why we say relationships are give and take. But what we really mean is we have love for the person and attachment to them. Well, love is something that's good. It makes you happy and it makes the other person happy. But attachment is actually something that's, that's, that's negative. This is an example. This is how we break these things up. And we see that actually um, what we're dealing with, again, is, is real phenomena that arise and cease. We're not dealing with a self. We're not dealing with a soul or, or a being. Even us is just a conglomeration of states that arise and cease. And so we're able to see that we can't control reality in the way we thought we did. We can um, intend to do something. We can intend for something to arise, but it doesn't mean that it's going to happen. We, the 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 best we can do is have intentions. We can intend to stand up. It's pretty easy. Most of us, when we intend to stand up, we can stand up. But it's not sure. You know, if if we become paralyzed or so on, we we can see that reality is not under our control. And this is extrapolated to, of course, um, our minds, our 
reaction to reality. We don't want to get angry, but we find ourselves getting angry. Well, then what sense is itself? We don't want to feel pain, but we still feel pain. We try our best to remove it, to not get sick and not uh, get old and so on, but we can't, we can't control even ourselves. Not to mention the people around us, which of course we try to control. Once we build up this idea of identities, this is that person, this is that, this is this thing, then we, um, we will try to, to, to keep them that way, to control them. And we we don't realize that these that it's made up of phenomena that are arising based on causes, and the best we can hope to do is to be a cause for some future results, knowing uh, at best knowing that there are other causes as well that will get in the way and might make it impossible. Non-self is a, is is a bit of a tricky one because it kind of makes you think that well then there's no point in doing anything because it's all futile and that's of course not what is meant here. What is meant is that um, there is no when when we talk about an entity we're actually dealing with with a conglomeration of parts. Even ourself, though we do have intentions and those intentions are causes for the arising of future results. Each intention is an individual act, and sometimes our intentions are are con conflicting, and they certainly don't all arise from the same place. They certainly aren't a aren't us in any sense. And so, well, well, there is an a, um, a sense of of the intentions being, you know, coming from from me and not from you, and in that sense, there is a difference between me and you. The whole of what we call ourselves is actually made up of combination of parts, and most of these parts are 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 out of our control. You know, you can't intend for the pain to go away and suddenly it's gone. You can't intend for yourself to be tall or short or fat or thin or or smart or so on. You can only uh, have an intention to create a cause in the present moment at this moment. That's the best you can hope to do. And I think more importantly is um, not just objectively seeing that, that that's the way it is, but also stopping uh, to, to create these intentions. This idea of non-self is not only that you can't control, but that trying to control is really a cause of suffering. That we think by controlling things, by uh, having being ambitious and trying to build up an entity, identity, and uh, build up a life for ourselves that's stable and and satisfying. We we only create more stress and conflict, right? We're creating something that has a power to it, and is going to come into conflict with the natural rhythm of things that are out of our control and eventually is going to break down so we work and we work and we work uh, and and in the end it's only temporary in the end it's futile you know we we spend much of our lives trying to create this stability all the way into the point where where we can no longer enjoy it and we have to leave it behind getting old sick and dying so we waste our lives in some futile exercise we spend our whole lives trying to make life 
bearable, make life stable, and so on. And so, what we realize in the meditation when we watch, say, the rising and the falling, we're going to see that it's it's impermanent. We're going to see that it's arising and ceasing. We're going to see that sometimes it's long, sometimes it's short. And so we're going to see that it's actually um, not going to make us happy, that, that we're, we're suffering even when we're watching the rising and the falling because we l enjoy it when it's smooth and we don't like it when it's stuck, we don't like it when it's short and so on. You'll find that it's actually a, a quite a bit of suffering uh, for you because you're trying to control it. You find that you want to make it smooth, the breath, even this simple exercise. This is why I say you can become enlightened watching the stomach rise and fall. People think it's such a mundane and, and useless exercise. But in fact, you can become enlightened just by looking at this. Because you're going to see the obsessions in the mind that you need to control it. You want to make it satisfying, you want to make it comfortable. This experience is going to somehow be uh, satisfying to you. But because it's it's in, in in it's dependent on so many different causes and conditions it can never really be truly satisfying so seeing these three things this is the essence of buddhist insight meditation we're practicing meditation to see simply these three things once you see these three things this is the path to purification this causes the mind to become pure when you see these things clearer and clearer and clearer, you cling to reality less and less and less, and you you con you try to control it less and less and less, and you're able to be in harmony with nature and let things go more, let things be more. You're able to roll with the punches and accept instead of trying to force and change and control. And it's the path to ultimate freedom, ultimate realization. Once you realize these things deeply and and incessantly, it changes our um, the nature of our awareness and our exp our interaction with the world around us. Suddenly, our mind or not gradually, our mind makes a shift, makes a takes it a different way of looking at things. So this paradigm shift, instead of seeing things as where I can find happiness in the world, and instead of trying to, uh, to create and to build and to gain and to uh, become, We, ha we, we don't have any of this ambition. and it, So in, in a sense, Buddhism is the, the, the path to have no path, to not go anywhere, to in the end r wake up and just see things, right? Because when you're asleep, your mind is all in a jumble, and that's really how we, we live our lives, clinging and so on, creating suffering for ourselves. When you're awake, you see things clearly, and that's the state we're looking for. You're going to wake up, and you're going to just see things as they are. This waking up is actually a very special realization, and and I don't often go into this. It's it's the kind of thing that you want to save for people who are doing intensive meditation practice, because it's it's really quite difficult to get to that state unless you're in an intensive meditation course. But just to get an idea of where we're going, the the realization of of the truth is the realization that everything ceases. The realization that 
as I said, everything is impermanent, it's unsatisfying, and it's not um, the self or the soul, that, that, that it's not um, controllable, it's not me and mine, and so on. And the clear, clearest realization of this, the ultimate realization, the final realization, is, is called nirvana. And it's given this name nirvana because it is the ultimate release. Along the path, we're going to start to let go. We're going to cling less. We're going to ease up and, and simply see things for what they are. But when this paradigm shift occurs, when we finally get it and our mind shifts and, and says no and let's, let's go, just a final freedom and letting go, this is the meaning of the word nirvana. And what happens then is there's this cessation. There is no seeing, no hearing, no smelling, no tasting, no feeling, and no thinking. And this realization of of the cessation of all arisen phenomena, with, without without any more arising, um, is the most profound spiritual experience that you can have. Anything else is just something that has arisen. Nirvana has no arising. Nirvana doesn't arise. This is very difficult to understand. It's the cessation. There's the cessation of suffering. At that moment, there is none of, there's none of these the, the, these arising because the mind doesn't cling. The mind doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't uh, see anything. It stops. The mind stops in its center. It's like it's come back to dead center. And it's the most profound and, and important realization because having re having experienced this, even just for a brief period in time, one loses one's desire for arisen phenomena, realizing that they have nothing on this, that this is the ultimate peace. You feel the, you can feel this new sense of peace. You, you know that that experience, you, you, you feel the power of the experience, this experience of cessation. Um, and you can it's this the most profound peace that exists and this even just this first realization of nirvana is uh, is life changing this is what makes one a noble a noble being because of course one has less anger less greed has uh, less delusion that we when we realize, having realized this we don't have any reason to get angry to to be upset about things that come we have no reason to be greedy to be addicted to things because we don't cling to these things anymore. We aren't looking for suffer, for happiness in those things. And so we suffer less, because we're not trying to find happiness in, in the impermanent flux of reality. So this is the, the path that we're talking about, and the realizations that we're hoping to gain. This is the talk. I, I tried to give this talk a while back, and my mic kept cutting out, so uh, I didn't give it. I don't know if any of you were that are here were there, but uh, maybe some of this is a repeat for you. For the rest of you and for everyone, I, I, that's all I have to say for today, and I'd like to thank you for coming, and I hope that it has been of some benefit, and uh, that you're able to put this into practice, and as a result, you're all able to progress on the path and find eventual true peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. If you have any questions, I'm happy to take them, otherwise, have a good day.